Welcome to the Two Journeys Bible Study Podcast. This podcast is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode six in our First Corinthians Bible Study Podcast. This episode is entitled, Expelling Immoral People Essential to Church Purity where we'll discuss 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses that we're looking at today? Well, this is an absolutely vital chapter on the issue of church discipline. Uh, every healthy church, in order to maintain its health, has to be willing to expel unrepentant or flagrantly immoral people from its membership and so retain its reputation in the eyes of the world. It is commanded that we do it. 1 Corinthians 5 is the clearest chapter on it. So in this chapter, we're going to see not just that it needs to be done, but why it needs to be done. Paul walks through all of that. So this is a pretty vital chapter for us. Well, let me go ahead and read 1 Corinthians chapter 5 as we begin. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed." Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Andy, what's the significance of the fact that the immorality Paul is addressing here doesn't even occur among the pagans and the fact that this case seems widely known in the community. Yeah, I think that points to one of the one of the reasons that churches need to practice biblical church discipline, and that is the reputation of the church in the community. The church should be salt and light, a city on a hill which cannot be hidden. And essential to it is the purity of the people. Sanctify them, Jesus said, by the truth. Your word is truth. We are to set be set apart unto God is holy, as he says, even in these Corinthian epistles. Um, he says, come out from her and be separate, says the Lord, her being Babylon, the city of Babylon. So it's a, uh, you know, a symbol of the world. We are to be 
called out from the world, called out from wickedness into a life of holiness. And so this sin, this scandalous sin, was so shocking that even Gentiles knew, you don't do this. And so therefore it points to uh, one of two reasons, I think, two categories that uh, churches need to practice church discipline. One of them is in this chapter, which is scandalous sins, whether the person seems to repent or not. I believe that. I think that you can... You can um, excommunicate someone and then observe their life. And if they say, I repent, I repent, I'm sorry for what I did, live it out. Live it out for a period of time. Uh, live out a brokenness and a repentance, and then the person can get accepted back in because it's going to take a long time to repair the reputation. Just saying in an afternoon or an evening, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it, etc. that's not enough. And the other would be in Matthew 18 where there's a stubborn defiance uh, despite many efforts to bring the person to repentance, they just dig in their heels and will not repent, then you excommunicate that person. These are two categories. This is of that first category, which is great scandalous sins that bring the reputation of the entire church into disrepute. Andy, this may be a silly question, but why does it matter what the community thinks about the holiness of a church? One of the reasons a local church has been planted there, as I hinted from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter five is that we are to be a city on a hill. Uh, we are a light up on a lampstand that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a bowl. Uh, instead, he puts it on a stand. It gives light to everyone in the house. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. So the light is purity. It's holiness. It's righteousness. Uh, the scripture says in 1 John 1, uh, verse 5, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live according to the truth. And so therefore, our reputation in the community must be of a church that is pursuing holiness. We're zealous for holiness. We're not claiming to be perfect, but we are yearning to be pure and holy, and that's the striving. If you have unrepentant, flagrant sin in your midst and you don't deal with it, then there goes your reputation. And so to what then are you calling the pagans? To what are you calling them? What are they supposed to leave? Whether they're just like, you're just like them and they're just like you. And so therefore it is very important that the church maintains a reputation for spirituality, for holiness and purity. Also, I would say based on John 17, for unity. Um, and love. Uh, by this will all men know that they uh, that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He says that plainly. And then in John 17, uh, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me. And so our unity, our love, our purity, those these are essential to our witness. In verse 2, Paul expresses his astonishment mm. at the arrogance displayed mm. by the Corinthian church in this case. In what ways do you think the Corinthian church was exhibiting arrogance and what attitude did Paul want the church to exhibit in this case instead of pride? Yeah, I don't know that they were specifically prideful or arrogant about this case of immorality. I think he, I, my guess is he's saying you're just generally arrogant. So he's going to bump into this again and again. They're very prideful people. They're very proud of their spiritual gifts. They've been blessed by every spiritual gift that they could have. They're blessed in every way, um, and but they tended to be arrogant and prideful. Uh, Paul would point to this, say, you have no reason to be proud. Look at what, what's going on in the midst of you. So he's actually quite stunned at their level of arrogance. This should have brought them shame. There is a healthy shame in connection with sin, and they should have been ashamed that they hadn't dealt with this sooner. How is the open display of grief or shame essential mm -hmm. to the outcome of church discipline? What action does Paul clearly want them to take and why? Yeah. So 
I, the, the word grief, I think, is potent here. And I, I think he says in another place, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. And so the Holy Spirit uh, can show powerful emotions over us, into, including grief. We use the word grief usually connected with death. Um, and so the idea is extreme mourning. When we sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit. Uh, if we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's task is to bring us to the same level of grief that he feels over the sin. And so it is appropriate to grieve over sin. I think that's what blessed are those who mourn means. Mm. Because if you look at the Beatitudes, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, they seem to be uh, the spiritual state required in an individual to go to heaven, to have eternal life. Blessed are the spiritual beggars, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit is the usual translation, but it's spiritual beggars. And um, blessed are the meek, uh, those who are lowly. Uh, they're not prideful, they're not arrogant, for they will inherit the earth. And then he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. The mourning there is not like mourning over someone who died in your family. The mourning is, is mourning over sin. And so I think there's a brokenness and a grief over sin. The very next beatitude is blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, uh, for they will be filled. So fundamentally, I think this is a mourning over sin. It's appropriate for Christians to mourn over their own sin. But here it's corporate mourning. They're supposed to be mourning over this individual sin. They should be grieved over this sin. What's the significance of Paul saying, I am present in spirit and I have already pronounced judgment in verse three. Yeah, those are great questions. I wanna say one more thing about the grief. Um, churches that practice church discipline should do so in that spirit of brokenness and grief also, not a spirit of, of um, superiority over the one being disciplined. You should mm. realize there's no difference between me and you. Uh, I haven't committed that sin you have, but I'm a sinner like you are, and I'm grieved over where you're at. There's a brokenness and a weeping over it. Um, that changes the whole demeanor, the whole attitude um, that the church has. So in terms of Paul saying, I'm with you in spirit, there is a there is that, that oneness in the spirit, that universal body of Christ. And I'm part of you because we're all part of the same body. And so you need to deal with this this tumor. You need to deal with this sin because I'm part of the body of Christ. Also, he's an apostle. He's the, the, the one who planted that church. So he has a special connection with them. He says, I'm with you. I'm there with you. Beyond that, there's also uh, a supernatural um, spiritual knowledge that prophets and apostles had. I don't know if you remember that story about about uh, Elisha healing the uh, the leper, Naaman, mm. and Naaman offered to pay him and he refused. And Naaman went back to his home country of Syria and uh, Elisha's servant, Gehazi, went after the guy and said, hey, look, you know, he he tried to get get some money, and he did. He got he got some silver and some changes of clothes and all that. And he goes back and stashes it in his room, and then goes back and stands in front of Elisha the prophet. And I always picture Elisha like doing something, not really looking at him, kind of over his shoulder, saying, "Where did you go, Gehazi? Oh, I didn't go anywhere." He said, "Was not my spirit with you when mm. you got when when Naaman got down out of that chariot?" And it's, "I was with you the whole time." And now his leprosy is going to cling to you. That's mm. eerie, but that's yeah. a prophet. And so Paul's saying, "I have a supernatural spiritual connection with you as the apostle that planted you." Mm. And concerning his, the statement that he made, and I've already passed judgment on him. This is a court trial, basically. This is an internal ecclesiastical court trial that he's calling the church to do to pass judgment. Now, people stumble over this. They say, the Bible says, judge not lest you be judged. But we don't pit one scripture against another. There is a sense in which it's absolutely wrong for us to judge. 
For Jesus says, in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. But Jesus didn't mean do not evaluate another person because he said, watch out for false prophets. They come to you like wolves in sheep's clothing. So you're supposed to judge whether somebody's a wolf in a sheep's clothing. So Jesus mm -hmm. is not saying absolutely there's no human judgment going on. And so the idea here is churches are under an obligation to deal with unrepentant or scandalous sin. And there is a sense of a court trial. And if the person did it and the appropriate steps need to be taken, it's time to pass judgment on that individual. He's specifically calling on the church to pass judgment on them. In verses four and five, Paul lays out both a method as well as a motive for pursuing church discipline. What other aspects of church discipline does Paul describe in verses four and five? And why must the whole church act when everyone is assembled? All right, well, let's, let me take the last part first. Church discipline is done by the church, not by the pastor or the elders or the deacons or something like that. It's got to be done by the whole church. Now, I am a Baptist. I believe in, in Baptist church polity in which the final highest authority um, ecclesiastical authority in a local church is the church itself, not the elders, uh, et cetera, the church. That's what congregationalism is. And the clearest proof there is of congregationalism are these church discipline cases. Uh, Matthew 18, Jesus, the final step is tell it to the church. Mm. And so uh, churches are the ones that need to act. Now, here are the procedures that Paul give. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I'm with you in spirit, and the Lord Jesus, the power of the Lord Jesus is present by the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, hand this man over to Satan. So we'll get to that phrase, but that is excommunicated. Put him out in the world. Put him out into Satan's world. That's what it means, I think. But that's what it, what it is. It's got to be done by the church. He's writing this epistle to the whole church, not to the specifically to the leaders of the church, but to the church. They have a duty to act. It is, it is their job to do this work. And so um, they're assembled. It has to be done publicly. Now, practically speaking, uh, this says a couple of things. First of all, when, when a church leader, a pastor, let's say, goes to a church that hasn't done church discipline in years, if ever, and he knows that that church needs to get healthy and needs to deal with, there might even be some specific discipline cases waiting. There might be some cases of cohabitation, some fornication going on, or there could be some other things. It's like clear biblical principles that are being violated, but he can't act. It won't happen anyway. The church won't do its duty. They're not ready to do its duty. And he'll just end up disciplining himself out of that church. They'll vote him out. They'll get rid of him because they're not ready. So I think then in a case like that, keep in mind what Jesus said, I have much to say to you more than you can now bear. So the church can't bear it yet. Build the church up. Get it ready to do its job. It'd be mm -hmm. like an army that hasn't been trained yet and needs to be trained so it can fight well. It's going to take time, so be patient. And so uh, fundamentally, the issue here is uh, their, their task is something that they have to do together, and the church leader has to get them ready to do it. Now, Andy, you mentioned this phrase just a moment ago, but in verse 5, it says that they are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. What mm -hmm. is Paul describing here, and what happens it, at this point in church discipline? Right. So I hinted at my interpretation of it. The hand man, the man over to Satan is simply another way of saying excommunicate him. In what sense, though, is excommunication handing a man over to Satan? Jesus' phrase is quite different, but I think we can harmonize it. Treat this man as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So look on him as an outsider. Look on him as quite poss possibly an unconverted 
man. Mm. So in what sense then is he handed over to Satan? It's basically, he's yours, all right? You own him. That's what he's saying. Now think about when Jesus talked about exorcism, when he was driving out demons, he said, when a strong man fully armed guards his possessions in, in his house, everything he owns is safe. But when someone stronger than him overpowers him and takes away the armor in which he trusted and plunders his house, uh, that's what that's what this exor exorcism is like. Jesus is the one stronger than the strong man. The strong man is Satan, and and his driving out of his demons is taking uh, plunder from him. He's saving an individual. All right. Well, if you reverse that whole thing around, hand the man over to Satan means he's really saying that he belongs to Satan. He's in mm -hmm. Satan's kingdom. Or again, Colossians says he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the beloved Son. When you hand the man over to Satan, you're saying no. You're still in the kingdom of darkness. Another statement is uh, in 1 John, it says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So imagine Corinth, Paul comes, it's a dark city, a dark place, everyone's in darkness, the people walking in darkness, all right? Then he preaches the gospel. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. That great light is Christ. Some come out of the darkness into light. There's this colony of light, this enclave of heaven in the midst of a dark, wicked, pagan city. All right, the church is that. The church is that light shining in a dark place. Hand the man, man over to Satan is put him back out into the darkness. That's mm. where he is. Now, it does seem that Paul holds out hope that this individual might yet repent mm -hmm. and be saved. Mm -hmm. But if the person never repents, how is the church discipline still worth doing? Yeah, he says, hand this man over to Satan so that his flesh may be destroyed or his body may be destroyed and his spirit saved in the day of the Lord. The second is easier for me to interpret than the first. His spirit saved in the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is judgment day. Spirit saved means you go to heaven, not hell. So this discipline is hopefully to bring about the salvation of the individual. I would say it's the number one warning shot that could ever happen in your life, right across the bow of mm -hmm. your life. Or it's the number one wake-up call that could ever come. A church thinks you're likely to be unconverted. You should do everything you can to make your calling and election sure at that moment because you don't want to go to hell. And so the tendency would be to be prideful and write off all Christians and say they're wrong and all that. Don't do that. Instead, take it very, very seriously. So the idea would be ultimately that you would be saved. Now, the, the flesh destroyed, it could be a matter of sickness. You know, Hand the man over to Satan so that you can get sick. You can be racked with with guilt and, and terrible feelings and just have a horrible time and then mm. want to come back into the light and repent and make it right. So that's the point. The point is ultimately the salvation of the individual. So here's the thing. We're starting to stack up as we walk through 1 Corinthians 5, the reasons why we do church discipline. We've got two of them so far, the reputation of the church in the community and the salvation of the sinner, mm. but there's others. Why does Paul return to their boasting in verse 6? And what does the analogy of the yeast permeating the whole batch of dough teach us about another motive for church discipline? Right, so that immediately is that next motive. And the reason that we do church discipline is because a little yeast leavens the whole lump or spreads through the whole batch of dough. It is that sin permeates, sin spreads like a cancer, like a, like a plague. Hmm. And so if this scandalous sexual sin, and we didn't say what it was, but it says a man has his father's wife. So he's uh, a man is having sexual relations with his, his stepmother probably. He would have just said your mother, which would be just sickening. But uh, this was his stepmother and you know he's 
it's just sinful, and you can't be a member of the church doing that. So fundamentally what he's saying here is um, if you don't deal with that sexual sin, you're going to start getting some copycats that are going to start spreading. Mm. You could imagine if the church doesn't deal properly with, let's say, issues of divorce or uh, other, other issues, uh, it's going to start to spread, and that's the danger. So the third reason um, that we give here um, for church discipline is to protect the uh, church from from sin spreading throughout the entire church. And so we need to protect uh, the rest of the church. And, that, and it does have that effect. You look at the case uh, of uh, Ananias and Sapphira, which is a case of direct church discipline by Almighty God, which he struck them dead for lying. Um, there was a fear that came over the entire church, mm. and that has a, a, an effect of holiness. So one of the reasons then is that, um, that the guilt and the wickedness and sin would not spread through the whole church. Now, back to the first question you asked, their boasting is not good. He's like, look, you should be humble. You should realize and one of the one of the humility aspects here, their boasting is they're underestimating the danger they're in. Mm -hmm. If they don't deal with the sin, they might be susceptible. Oh, no, 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 that would never happen to me. You got to be careful. So stop being arrogant, fear sin and deal with it. In verse 7, Paul reaches for the Jewish Passover ritual of cleansing the household once a year of all yeast. What analogy does he make to the Corinthian church, and how is that analogy relevant to the issue of the purity of the church and Christ's sacrifice for it, as we've just been discussing? Well, uh, the night of the Passover, they ate unleavened bread. Uh, they didn't have time for the bread to rise. And so also there was a, a later command in the law of Moses to get rid of all the yeast from the house. And there could have been a hygienic aspect of that because the idea is that you're making um, uh, leavened bread uh, and you get the yeast from the last lump. You break off a little piece and it's got the yeast in it, the active yeast. Um, and then you make the loaf and cook it and eat it. But you got this little piece that's broken off and you mix that in. And right before you cook the next loaf, you break off that piece and it just keeps going on. So it's like, mm, there's like yeast in there that's like a year old. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, let's see if we can kind of clean the thing out. And so it could have been a hygienic issue, but mm -hmm. there are clear, a clear command to get rid of all the yeast in the house. And they would search throughout the house and try to find any yeast they could and get rid of it. Paul picks up on this as a picture of the, the house of the Lord, the church, being cleansed from all sin and wickedness. Andy, at the end of verse 7, uh, Paul speaks of Christ, our Passover lamb, having been sacrificed. Mm. Uh, is he just connecting with this Passover imagery, or is there more here that Paul wants us to have in mind as we think about Christ as the Passover lamb? Yeah, I think it's important that we understand how the foundation, the prophetic foundation of Christ's, uh, Christ's work was laid in the, in the cycle of festivals. There were three festivals, three times a year, the Jewish men had to assemble to the one place that God chose where all of Israel would worship. Uh, the first was Passover, or called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and Christ is the Passover lamb, and he fulfilled that picture by his death on the cross. He was the Passover lamb, as you remember. Uh, the lamb was sacrificed and its blood painted on the doorposts and lintels of the Jewish people while they were still in bondage right before the tenth and dreadful plague on the firstborn to save them from being killed as well because they deserved it too. Um, but the Passover lamb, the blood, represents Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. That has been fulfilled now. The second feast is the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of, of First Fruits. And um, the Jews were to gather together and celebrate the beginning of the harvest, the first fruits 
of um, the ingathering uh, coming in or the, the first fruits of the harvest. That also has been fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. The third and final is, um, is the feast of, I think, called ingathering. It's the end of the harvest when everything has been gathered in. That has not yet been fulfilled. Mm. And that's the end of the gospel being spread to the ends of the earth. And so I think Paul wants these Gentile Christians to understand the Jewish heritage of their faith and how prophetically laid out it was. But now he's extending it to the issue of holiness, which I think we're going to talk about now again one more time with this issue of yeast. Yeah. Paul contrasts leaven, malice and evil with unleavened bread, sincerity and truth in verse eight. What does that analogy teach us about the church and holiness as you just said? Right, in this case, it's very clear that that leaven or yeast is a picture of evil and it spreads. So in this case, the yeast of malice and wickedness it has the, po- uh, the power to spread. So while these two words, malice and wickedness, um, maybe not o- overtly connected to the sexual sin, although wickedness definitely could, all sexual sin is wickedness. Um, but the idea of malice, the, it, the idea is it pollutes, it spreads. And so uh, malice would be like the author of Hebrews talks uh, about the root of bitterness, you know, some broken relationships. You get the feeling that that with bickering and fighting and factions and divisions, there's malice in the, in the church at Corinth. And so this wickedness is the issue of sexual sin. He said, look, that yeast is going to spread. You guys need to get rid of it um, so that you can be a bread made without yeast in a bread of sincerity and truth, a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. How does Paul's instruction in verses 9 through 11 about associating with evil people actually get lived out? And what reasons do you think Paul would give for not even eating with wicked people who call themselves brothers? Yeah, so don't associate, don't even eat with such a person. The idea is the individual who's being excommunicated needs to understand how serious this is. So there are questions, practical questions. What if you are married to, what you know, you could imagine a husband and wife and the husband is excommunicated and the wife is not, should they not eat meals together? Uh, Jonathan Edwards and others address that, uh, I think, to my satisfaction, saying, no, it's not breaking the normal pattern of life that we have to live together. Um, the point is we're not looking to have, like, go out for coffee with this individual or, or have a meal like everything's fine. Hmm. I think the idea is don't give – it's not like it's some sin to eat to eat or drink in this person's presence. Like we're going to be legalistic and rigid about this. The point is the individual knows this is serious. I can't hang out with you. We're not just going to hang out. Now, if you want to get together and talk about what happened and about the state of your soul, let's do that. You know, let's talk seriously about it. I'll meet with you for that, but we're not just going to hang out. We're not going to watch the ball game together. Mm. We're not going to play a game. We're not going to have our families get together. It's like, no, no, no. We're not going to do that. But I want to do everything I can to bring you to repentance. So that's what I think it means. So I understand there are difficult practical questions here. But no, husbands don't stop eating with excommunicated wives or wives eating with excommunicated husbands. But he said don't associate with them. And then he's very, very clear. Uh, He zeroes in on the issue of sexual immorality. This is a big problem in the Corinthian church. Um, they're, They're surrounded by illicit sex, temple prostitutes, male and female that plied their trade. And before Paul came to town, that was a big part of the darkness. Mm. We also uh, struggle with sexual immorality. And the idea is, look, we cannot associate with sexually immoral people. And he says, look, I'm not talking about pagans. You can eat with sexually immoral pagans. I mean, don't do sexual immorality with them, Mm. but you can eat with them. You can, can, if if a non-Christian invites you over, 
go over there for the sake of evangelism. We're not talking about that now. We're talking about somebody who claims to be a brother or a sister in Christ, but they're living in flagrant disregard of God's sexual mores. Mm. Don't eat with such a person. Now, if I told you you couldn't eat with any sexually immoral Gentiles, you would have to leave this world. What are you going to do? You can't work with them. You can't trade with them. You can't do anything with them. No, he says, no, then you would have to leave this world. But I am telling you not to associate with people who call themselves brother and yet are living this wicked life. It seems the primary distinction is that they are living inconsistent. Those who would call themselves brothers, they are living inconsistently with their confession where people who are of the world are living consistent with what they believe. They're pursuing their own pleasure, their own ends. Uh, And so we would long for them to come to Christ But the inconsistency of calling ourselves brothers and living in that way is what marks that out as off limits. Yeah, that's the whole problem here. That's the reason for doing church discipline at all is that the name of Christ may be held in honor. Like the, like the, the Lord's Prayer, may your kingdom, uh, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You look at that. Our, may your name be hallowed. May Christ's name be held in honor. So this individual calls himself a brother, but he's leading a wicked and immoral mm. life. So there's zero backlash with you sitting at table with some pagan that goes every day to the temple of Artemis of the Ephesians. Well, that's what he does. And oh, you ate with him. Yeah, i actually trying to lead him to Christ. So Christ, there's no backlash there on the gospel. There's no backlash on Christ. Mm. But now if you're talking about somebody who claims to be a Christian, that's a whole different matter. Andy, we talk about verses 12 through 13 in our prospective new member weekend because it deals with church membership and how we should think about this inside-outside language. Uh, What does that teach us about the local church? How does it prove the existence and validity of committed local church membership, including uh, perhaps a a list or we might think of a directory of names of present members? Yeah, well, that's that's a great question. you know, we try to, everything that we do, every significant thing we do in the life of the church, we should be able to trace back to passages of scripture rightly exegeted. So if somebody asks us the question, what is covenant membership in a local church? Well, covenant means we've agreed to a, a set of doctrines, a set of statements about ourselves that we've written up in our church covenant, and we've agreed to this. It's it's not to the same significant level of a marriage covenant where a couple gets up in front of witnesses and in front of a pastor and makes certain promises to each other, but it's similar to that. We're making promises to each other to be a certain way for each other. That's what covenant. Well, what is membership? Membership is we're seen to be a part of that church a significant part member similar to like a member of your uh, member of your body a bodily member like your your arm or your foot or a finger um, and Paul even uses that analogy so if you were to ask me how do you know that membership in the church is biblical Paul uses the Greek word mele which is translated member so there it is first Corinthians 12 you are, you are the body and all of you are members of it so there it is there's membership but more specifically I would actually go as you said to here first Corinthians 5 12 and 13 the word member isn't isn't used here but we do have this inside outside language Paul's saying what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. So the outside-inside kind of aspect here gives a sense of a boundary, like a line you could draw. But we know that 
they didn't, I don't know, we know this for sure, but I don't think they had a church building. So when he's saying outside, inside the church, now for us, we have a building here in Durham, all right? So if it's outside on a rainy day, you're gonna get wet, come on inside and you won't get wet. There's a ch church building. Paul's not talking about that. So therefore, what is the church? It's a group of people who know themselves to be part of the same church. You said, you know, probably comes down to a list of names. And I think the list, just because we can't remember everyone. You think about on the day of Pentecost, Peter preached and the other apostles preached and 3,000, 3,000 were added to their number that day. Who could remember them all? Oh, I have a very good memory. You don't have that <laughs> good a memory. Good. <laughs> no way. There, you know, there's like 16 of them that were named Titus and, and six of them were named whatever. It's like, we got to know who these people are. So there had to have been a list. Furthermore, Paul talks about a list of widows that you are going, that the church is going to help. Uh, could, should their name be on the list or not on the list? And so there had to be a list. So for me, fundamentally, 1 Corinthians 5, 12, and 13 is proof that there is a list of members and we know who they are and they're in. And when we are excommunicating them, we're voting them off the list. They are no longer seen to be a member. By the way, that is the final step of church discipline, all right? It's stunning to me that the medieval Catholic church in the Spanish Inquisition thought mm. it was appropriate to torture to torture heretics, to torture people who had false doctrine. A man in the 16th century, an Anabaptist named Balthazar Hubmeyer wrote a work against this. First time this was ever clearly addressed, this idea of physical torture and death that the church would mete out on heretics, mm -hmm. on people who taught false doctrine. And Balthazar Hubmeyer wrote a treatise entitled On Heretics and Those Who Burn Them. And he argued that heretics should be excommunicated, not burned. <laughs> because there's no scripture on this. There's yeah. no burning. I think a lot of times people go to the Old Testament and try to bring it over into the New. But all churches are to do with sinners who won't repent or scandalous sin or heresies is excommunicate the individual. What final clear command does Paul give in verse 13? And what final thoughts do you have on this chapter for us today? Well, it couldn't be clearer. Expel the wicked man from among you, my translation says. All right. So fundamentally, God's going to judge the pagans. He's going to judge the sexually immoral pagans. He's saying that's why the wrath of God is coming. That's why we're doing evangelism. We don't want them. We don't want them to experience the judgment of God on, on the wicked. We want them to flee the wrath to come. That's what the gospel is about, a refuge, a place where you come out from the wrath of God and you're safe. That's why the church has to be pure. That's why the church has to be holy. That's a refuge. It's because of those things, Paul says, that the wrath of God is coming. So come out from that behavior pattern. So therefore, conversely, we've got to expel the wicked man from among us so that we don't have the wickedness within the church and it spreads to all the other members. So it's pretty clear. Final word on this is churches need to take this seriously. This is the word of God. Mm. And if churches are not actively engaged in healthy biblical church discipline, they ought to be moving toward it as soon as possible. The, all the church needs to get on board with this and understand it. And there's ways to get there through the faithful teaching of the word and through faithful um, shepherding and pastoral ministry. You can get the church to the point where it'll do its duty. Well, this has been episode six in our First Corinthians Bible Study podcast. 
We want to invite you to join us next time for Episode 7, entitled Lawsuits and Sexual Immorality Among Believers, where we'll discuss 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 20. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.